The Energy Gang is brought to you by Wilson Sonsini, Goodrich and Rosati, the premier legal services provider to technology, life sciences and clean energy enterprises. Wilson Sonsini has built a leading energy and climate solutions practice and its team is dedicated to a single goal, advancing what's next in the energy industry. Wilson Sonsini is the firm of choice for companies, investors and lenders worldwide. They work with innovative early-stage companies on transactions and agreements and represent clients in large-scale energy project financings and market-opening regulations. For more information about Wilson Sonsini's energy and climate change team, visit wsgr.com. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang. I'm Ed Crooks. On today's show, we're going to be talking about two solutions to a familiar problem, how to maintain reliable electricity supplies as the share of renewables on the grid rises. Those two solutions are number one, geothermal power, and number two, the intriguingly titled virtual power plants. And some of the mysteries of those two technologies are what we're going to be exploring today. To do that, I'm joined again by Melissa Lott, who's the Director of Research at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hey, doing well, Ed. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks. Very well. Very nice to be back here and talking to you again. It's also a great pleasure to welcome back Neki Kabule, who's a principal at Aligned Climate Capital, which is a decarbonisation-focused investment firm. And she's also a co-founder of Green Tech Noir. Hi, Neka. How are you? Great to have you back on the Energy Gang. Hello. It's so great to be here. Yeah, thanks very much for joining us again today. So, as I was saying, first thing I want to talk about on the show is geothermal energy. That is, using the Earth's heat to provide electricity, as well as heating and cooling. It's not really a subject we've talked about very much on this show in the past. And arguably, there's a good reason for that, which is that on a global scale, it's still a very, very small business. It's only about one half of a percent of all the renewable energy capacity installed worldwide. But, and I think this is really one of the key reasons we want to talk about it today, is geothermal can do something that's really important, which is, unlike solar and wind power, it can provide electricity 24-7, whatever the weather, with zero emissions. And the more solar and wind power we have, the more useful that 24-7 power becomes. So one of the things I'm keen to talk about now is the question of, should we be taking geothermal energy much more seriously? Neka, maybe start with you on this. What are your general thoughts about geothermal? As an investor, how interested are you in that sector? Yeah, I think geothermal is really interesting uh, when it comes to this climate fight that we're in and in a rush to decarbonize our grid. I think it's really important for us to invest in all aspects of renewable generation. That makes sense. At Align Climate Capital, we're really focused on early stage companies, really seed to series B. So a lot of times when there are more tech heavy investments like geothermal, we don't often come into them because we come in after the tech de-risking has been done. And considering the cost of building out geothermal plants, which is enormous today, it means that by the time these projects get de-risked, they're probably not the right fit for Aligned Climate Capital or a lot of our kind of partner firms that we work with. When you look across the industry, though, and you think, what are the potential areas you might be interested in at some point? What do you think? As you say, a couple of key characteristics about it seem to be, one, there's a lot of upfront cost, and two, there's a lot of technological innovation going on. There are companies that are using techniques from the oil and gas industry, horizontal drilling, in order to increase the area that's going to be available for 
creating steam, which you can use to generate electricity. There's a company which has been looking at very, very deep drilling using millimeter waves. I don't really understand what millimeter wave technology is, to be honest, but it's some kind of electromagnetic wave technology. It's something a little bit like a laser, I think, but not in the optical spectrum, which you can use for drilling down 20 kilometers, they're saying. So far, far deeper into far hotter temperatures than you could manage with a conventional drill bit and so on. These, as I say, very interesting ideas flying around. In terms of the ones that might get to the point where you are thinking, okay, this is something for us, this is something we might want to invest in, what are the ones you think potentially might be the most interesting? So I like to think about every sort of technology having an upstream and a downstream ecosystem. So one of the things that we like to get into, even if we're not investing in a specific you know, geothermal plant, but like what is the technology that has to exist or what ecosystem or constellation of companies need to be there in order for this technology to thrive? I've been thinking a lot about workforce development specifically, um, and we talk about workforce being a key driver of this technological change, but there's a huge opportunity for us to reskill folks that are working in natural gas and the oil and gas exploration business to reaffirm their skills to be used for geothermal. So we're thinking about what would it take to take those folks into a cleaner economy. And we're thinking about investing in like what sorts of services could support that. But additionally, there's all sorts of kind of picks and shovels around this. There's talks about permitting and the land use challenges and how are we making sure that there's interconnection for folks to tie into? We're really interested in all those aspects. So the de-risked part of it is the grid interconnection part. The de-risked part of it is, you know, how do we train people and get literal boots on the ground so that when, you know, geothermal is at scale, as you talked about, it's still quite small, we can hit the ground running. But it, even just commercializing that as an option, if we think about where geothermal electricity is, Right now, um, you know, there's a ring of fire in the Pacific Ocean, which is, by the way, like a great name. <laughs> Isn't it fantastic? Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Most of it is in the Western United States. So there are folks who are, you know, internationally trained in all of these engineering skills, but are they in the right places where geothermal is geographically distributed? Is it a function of moving people? Is it reskilling and retraining? You know, what does the next generation of workers and heavy materials industries look like? I got to say, when you say Ring of Fire, all I can think of is Johnny Cash and the great movie <laughs> that came out a few years ago. <laughs> like, so now the song is going in my head. But um, we're focused on geothermal today. One thing I will say, Ed, is I feel like going back to your talking about the different technologies and stuff, I mean, I think at a really fundamental level, one thing we need to dig into when it comes to geothermal and geothermal energy is that when you're tapping into a heat source, you can get a couple of different things. We focus in very quickly on generating electricity, but actually in significant parts of the world, they're using geothermal to produce heat. So when I was in Iceland last summer with the high school students I was teaching there, we learned about how in Iceland, when you look at their electricity mix, it's mostly geothermal and hydro. Well, actually the hydro is what's powering industry and geothermal is producing some electricity, but a lot of it is actually uh, sending heat to local cities and local towns to heat homes. And so there's a bunch of different resources you can get from geothermal and it's electricity, sure, but it can be other things as well. Right. But just to focus on the electricity for a bit, totally take your point, as you say, it's valuable for heat and that's also useful. How important do you think it is to get geothermal electricity working at scale for the general decarbonisation of the grid 
out of the power system. As I say, just it feels to me like given the lack of options that we have, not the complete lack, but a fairly limited option set for providing clean, i.e. low carbon, zero carbon, firm, i.e. dispatchable, reliable power, geothermal looks like potentially a really important uh, part of that set of options and one that surely should be used more than we're using at the moment, given particularly all the challenges that we get from multiplying up the reliance on wind and solar, which is absolutely coming, is absolutely necessary, but does create challenges. So we've talked about on the show many times how if you don't have these resources that can produce electricity 24-7, 365, uh, to complement the other team of players that you have in the system, that you will end up with either expensive power, unreliable power, or both things. So it is absolutely important that you have resources in your mix that complement the variable renewables like wind and solar and lots of different types of energy storage technologies, not just batteries, but batteries and many other things. So the question of what tools are in your toolbox, there's not that many. So you can talk about nuclear. We did a whole show on it. You can talk about carbon capture attached to a fossil fuel plant. So maybe that's natural gas. Um, And then you can talk about geothermal. You can also talk about big hydro, but there's some really interesting question marks in the face of a changing climate about what we can think of in terms of hydro. And certainly if I'm sitting in the middle of California right now, or if I'm just someone who flips through, you know, the front pages on major newspapers and is looking at kind of these lakes reappearing and, you know, then disappearing uh, during drought years, certainly the variability when it comes to hydro is something that is top of mind in some parts of the world. So you just don't have that many tools available to you. So taking one out of your toolbox, probably not the best idea. So geothermal is one that we have figured out ways to tap into it in more places, not every single place in the world, but more places than we used to. And so whether it's you know using millimeter waves, which I will say for anyone who does dive into technology, this idea that we are melting and vaporizing things as we bore into the crust, like this is very... This is very interesting from an engineering perspective, but also as, you know, Neka, you were talking about the transferable skills when it comes to fracking and horizontal drilling. I know when we talk about Fervo Energy and we talk about Tim Latimer's crew over there and what they're able to do and how many more places in the U.S. they're going to be able to tap into a geothermal power and produce electricity that way, it is much more than we were able to do not that long ago. Definitely. And I think you touched upon this in terms of this 24-hour clean electricity when people have arguments against renewable energy it's always around the intermittency so like what if there's a cloud or what if the wind stops blowing so access to this kind of baseload power is pretty incredible i think the closest thing we have to that is nuclear and we know there's a lot of mixed feelings around nuclear and in japan specifically which happens to fall the, the ring of fire there's been some discussion you know after they've shut down um a lot of their nuclear after Fukushima, whether Japan should be investing more into their geothermal and how do you replace the power source. So I think it's fascinating. I think it's also one of those things that people don't want to think about because we're always looking to find cheaper alternatives until you make the big investment that you need to make. So I, I think of this aphorism about how cheap shoes are cheap shoes and you have to buy it 10 times versus a pair of good boots. You buy it once and you can repair it and it lasts a long time. So I think for a lot of people who are trying to figure out is geothermal the equivalent of high quality boots or is geothermal the equivalent of a reach goal we'll get there if we get there. Yeah, and I will say when I look at the future of geothermal, it is important. I feel like that we 
acknowledge um, the type of shoes, I guess, that geothermal was in the past, to use the, the line that you're talking through. So when I was working with the New Zealand government, I worked with them on several occasions. I lived in Christchurch for a bit. And some of the old, not the modern closed loop systems we talk about today, okay, which uh, we can look at the life cycle emissions from those and it's very, 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 very good. But the older technologies, this is like Ed, when we were talking about old nuclear versus the future of nuclear, kind of how they look different. When it comes to geothermal moving forward, I know when we were analyzing existing geothermal plants that were the old designs in New Zealand, some of them had emissions impacts that were actually equivalent of an efficient natural gas power plant. But the modern technologies are not that way. And so this is a very important point for those countries who have moved into geothermal in a very significant way and are looking at, okay, these were great. How can I actually use the system I have, but modernize it to fit with my climate goals? So that's kind of amazing for me to hear that, that you can have equivalent emissions to a natural gas power plant from a geothermal system. What is being emitted there? So when, when you're tapping into pockets of heat underneath the Earth's crust, you can release other gases that you don't want to release. Now, in modern closed-loop systems, you're not allowing those gases to get out into the atmosphere. You're actually putting them back into the system and, and capturing them effectively. You're, you're never releasing them, so have you captured them? But it's a closed-loop system, not an open-loop system. Um, so you're not actually letting that out into the atmosphere. And so this is one of the things when we look at modern closed-loop systems, we don't have these same concerns, which is really, really impressive. That's really interesting. It is the case, though, isn't it? Even with these modern systems, there are potential environmental issues. There's the question of the toads, which I want to come on to in a moment, but also potentially more seriously, there is the question of earthquake risk. There's pretty clear evidence demonstrated in quite a number of studies that geothermal systems can increase earthquake risk. And there have been in South Korea, for instance, actually quite serious earthquakes with geothermal systems as a contributing factor is that something we should be really worried about, do you think, Melissa? Or is that something which is going to really seriously limit the growth of geothermal power? Yeah, so I think with all technologies, there's trade-offs. You've heard me say this, and many people say this all the time. Uh, it feels like a broken record sometimes. Geothermal has trade-offs as well. You're drilling into the earth. You're releasing gases. You need to make sure you're trapping those gases and putting them back into the earth, because otherwise you can still be contributing um, to climate change, and also releasing other types of air pollution that can lead to acid rain, et cetera. Now, we know a lot about geothermal, because we've been using it for a while at this point, and we have technologies to help us mitigate that risk. Whether it's on the air pollution side, we have scrubbers, so we can actually pull that that stuff out before it goes in the air. Um, we know how to contain those risks. But it is something that we should be constantly studying and making sure that we understand. Um, you know, when there are concerns, we should be collecting the data and seeing what the data tell us about what the real risks are and balancing those risks. Because it is certainly not something that we want to do is to trade off, you know, one set of things for another, unless we have deemed that the first set of risks is worse. You know, so that's the choices that we're making. And also a subject we've touched on many times in the show in recent months, the question of wildlife impacts and other potential environmental damage being done by low carbon energy development. I don't know how closely you've been following this ORMAP project in Nevada, but this was a geothermal project that seemed like it had a lot of potential, was quite exciting, a lot of interest in it. It's going to be a 60 megawatt project but then it turned out that the hot springs that were going to be affected by the geothermal plant fed a marshy area that was a habitat for an endangered species of toad, the Dixie Valley toad, which basically exists in this little part of Nevada and nowhere else in the world. And there was a genuine issue about whether if you disturb this 
area with big industrial development of a geothermal plant, you're going to destroy the habitat for this endangered species of toad as going to be completely wiped out as a consequence because of the kind of furore around this and government investigations. There's a lot of litigation going on and so on. Already that project has been cut back from 60 megawatts to just 12. And the fight's continuing. I think it's not entirely clear yet, even whether that smaller version of the project is going to be able to go ahead. Neka, when you think about projects being investable, you say you want them to be de-risked. Presumably this is exactly the kind of issue you want to avoid having to face is the question of whether you're going to be wiping out an endangered toad. Yeah. As large renewable energy projects continue to be deployed, we're going to have to face the issue that large construction problems face. Um, Regardless of whether the end goal is clean energy, there are implications of doing these sorts of projects. Now, I don't think as a society we've decided that it's okay to wipe out a species quite yet. So that's where we are. But I think people are starting to encounter these sorts of challenges, whether it's a tortoise or a a fish species, toads, uh, certain birds, um, across every type of kind of renewable energy development. And this is the part where sometimes the good guys become the bad guys temporarily. We have to understand sometimes uh, as part of our de-risking process at Align Climate Capital, we think about what is the downstream effect of our technology being successful. For the most part, it's more clean energy. It's a more pollution-free world. It's a world with more energy security. And sometimes it's a world that also might have a little bit less biodiversity. And I don't think anyone is kind of pitching for that. Um, And I think we have to be really careful where we draw the line of offering more clean energy solutions versus understanding who suffers. Yeah, and I'll say just along those lines. So when it comes back to your question about earthquakes, Ed, I mean, there was that, what was it, 2017 earthquake in South Korea? I think it was around a 5.5 magnitude earthquake that they said, hey, you know, the research showed that the development of geothermal energy projects were the cause of it. And there was that geophysicist from Stanford, um, William Ellsworth, who said, hey, this is what we're seeing in terms of what caused it. And here's some potential solutions. So there's a technical solution to that. Now, when it comes to siting, there's a bunch of different tensions at play here. So one is the fact that, you know, not mitigating climate change will have an impact on ecosystems and on biodiversity. Acting on climate change will also have an impact <laughs> on biodiversity and potentially ecosystem services. On balance, probably better but in some cases you know if that toad or you know i talk about desert tortoises a lot um but if that animal or that plant or that species is critical to that ecosystem you know there's there's trade-offs that will have to be made because going to zero carbon is not going to a future where we don't build things actually we build a lot of things to get to net zero um and so you know we're balancing trade-offs the entire way there. So when it comes to geothermal, we absolutely, just with every other technology, when we know how to mitigate an impact, we should, and let's do that. But making an informed choice, I guess, is the name of the game. And that's what NEPA requires us to do, right? NEPA doesn't decide if we build something. It makes us actually evaluate what the impacts are going to be. Now, Endangered Species Act, of course, we're getting into another piece of the law that we'd have to go down that that rabbit hole on. Um, And all the other laws that we have to consider in this, but those impacts are real and direct, but also not acting and not building things is a real and direct impact. 
Yeah, absolutely. NEPA, for anyone who doesn't know, that's the National Environmental Policy Act, which is... Our favourite topic. <laughs> bedrock. Exactly, <laughs> our favourite topic, is. exactly. Absolutely yeah. bedrock of uh, environmental processes and permitting and the way all the, that gets done in the United States. I'm interested to see that the question of NEPA reform is back uh, rising up the agenda in Congress again. The Republican Party is now promoting it. I'm sure we'll have to come back to that in another show. The um, final thing before we get off the subject of geothermal that I did want to talk about, though, is a classic example then of these environmental trade-offs you've been talking about is my favourite proposed geothermal project, this one in the Yellowstone Caldera, which you probably know, basically Yellowstone Park is mostly this absolutely massive volcano. And these two scientists, Thomas Arciolo and Mead Faisapur, have proposed this plan for turning that into one big geothermal plant, which they say could generate easily 1.2 terawatts of power. That's pretty good. I think average power generation in a typical year in the US is about 450 gigawatts, so whatever that is, 0.45 or so terawatts. So they're saying this one geothermal plant in the Yellowstone caldera could generate more than twice the entire power supply of the US right now. Uh, and they say that it could also have enormous safety benefits. They say that you could kind of basically relieve the pressure in the volcano and delay its eruption. They uh, argue that if it does blow, it will cause, cause tens of millions of deaths, they say, which they believe could be avoided with this plan. And they say all of this for the very reasonable cost of $3.5 trillion is their estimate. So it's big, but um, perhaps not impossible. I think it's somewhat unlikely ever to happen, but it is, uh, it's interesting to think about. And as I say, perhaps if you think ever, we are going to get to that point of really having to think big about zero carbon energy. Maybe this is the kind of thing we have to think about. Yeah, well, I'll just, if people haven't discovered them already, I think one great visual that we have to think through when it comes to all these plants, proposed ideas, concepts on someone's drawing board, the Nature Conservancy has their, what is it, the power of place studies. And they have this great, you know, inverted pyramid with the top. It's like, okay, this is the total land mass. And then we get to narrower. Okay, let's think about what land is already developed. And you're not going to displace a home. You're not going to displace something else. You're going to have to think about things like national parks, um, conserve uh, areas that are already in some kind of conservation area of some type. Then you've got physically unsuitable land. You keep chalking it down and then you get to the part where you're like, is there a grid tie-in nearby? Can I put these electrons onto a system? And then you keep going down and keep going down to when you can actually get permits and financing and construction and then actually commission a project. And you've gone from a huge huge amount of land to a tiny, tiny tip of a pyramid that is actually a practically executable project. There's a lot of different factors. And so within that, you know, if we take out like the Grand Canyon one also comes up when it comes to the transition to net zero, you know, are we going to mine near it, mine in it? You know, are we going to tap into Yellowstone? Um, I can remember as a kid walking through there and smelling a lot of sulfur. So no shock to me, there's a lot of geothermal resources there. But it's like, what are we actually going to develop at the end of the day? What is a physically suitable place that isn't already developed that has access to a grid or where we are willing to build a grid into? And this goes back to the tools in the toolbox conversation, where we can take geothermal and put it on a site, let's say, where there was already a power plant. So we already have a tie-in, there was already development there and it was you know heavy carbon intensive but actually as a geothermal resource that is a win 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 there's not that many of those sites 
But where there are, that's that's obvious. I think there's also something to be said here around like the way we think about extraction. I think the idea of optimizing something like Yellowstone is like of kind of the old capitalism mindset that like just because all those trillions of reserves are there that we should do that. Mm. But like, as Melissa pointed out, there's so many ways to think about this. And maybe it's just like a small geothermal plant is like reasonable that small geothermal plant that might be grid tied, but kind of going back onto like the new technology that we have, there's a number of startups that are looking at the ways that we can look at spent geothermal and even looking at current sites that are kind of pumping weekly and like re- at either reinvigorize them or, you know, kind of drill alongside them. So all of a sudden you're working a little bit smarter versus harder. And I think that's kind of the idea that like in this new economy, instead of like bigger, better, it's almost like a circular economy perspective. Like where can we support the ecosystem that exists, make it stronger, make it more profitable, and then also grow in addition to that. And I think that is also how we think about kind of the circular economy in the sense that, you know, people always want to talk about recycling, but the first thing that we should do is probably start with less waste first before we get to the recycling part. Wilson Sonsini is the premier provider of legal services to technology-driven enterprises and innovators. The firm represents growing and established companies and advises management teams and boards of directors. The firm is nationally recognized for its work advising clients on sophisticated corporate and technology transactions, counseling on complex governance and operational issues, and assisting with IP-related matters, in addition to representing clients in litigation and regulatory matters. In 2022, Wilson Sonsini was named to Fast Company's annual list of the world's most innovative companies. The award acknowledges the firm's role in the new economy as a creative force in advancing new forms of innovation from fintech to sustainability. Wilson Sonsini's energy and climate change team represents emerging and established clean energy and decarbonisation clients on capitalisation, project development, project finance and market opening regulatory matters. For more information, visit wsgr.com. Wood Mackenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back. It's taking place at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco on June the 21st and 22nd. You can join leading utilities, solar and energy storage developers and federal policymakers to discuss the big issues facing the industry today. How is the Inflation Reduction Act supercharging the development of solar and storage in North America? How can policy continue to support the growth of solar and storage to advance the energy transition? And what does the industry need to build a thriving domestic supply chain? Expect two days of panel discussions, presentations and workshops as we explore the opportunities for solar and storage now and for the future. Buy your ticket before April the 14th and save $400. It's going to be a great event and we look forward to seeing you there. Now, I want to move on because I want to talk about virtual power plants. And I think I should preface this discussion with a bit of a confession. When Toby, who's our producer, said, oh, we should talk about virtual power plants this week, I thought, yes, that's an excellent idea because it struck me as a great opportunity for me to learn about virtual power plants. Um, Virtual power plants, VPPs, are one of those technologies that I've been sort of, I've been aware they're very important and particularly important for 
subject we're talking about on this show, balancing a grid with a rising share of variable renewables. But every time I feel like I learn what a VPP is, it kind of, the knowledge slips away from me and I have to learn it all over again. So I don't know, who who wants to pick up the uh, challenge of explaining what is a virtual power plant first of all <laughs> Melissa you want to you're you're, you're you're looking you're kind of leaning into the mic here go on I am what is it because like I want to put it so I do this because I'm surrounded by like brilliant people at the center right who specialize in all these things that I don't specialize on and um none of them will be surprised by the following statement so I'd love to describe what I think it is so that I can hear y'all's thoughts on where I'm missing something or where I have a white space um that's, that's honestly so I'm putting myself out there to have darts thrown at it here in a minute. But when I talk about virtual power plants, and when I look at the definitions and the different reports that I've either been a part of putting together or that I read um, in different ways, it's really saying it's a conglomeration of things that are both on the supply and demand side. So it's distributed supply resources. So it can be, you know, solar panels on rooftops that have some kind of software that allows them to be, you know, aggregated together in some way and like used in some way together. But it's also demand side resources. So it's, you know, virtually saying I'm going to create extra capacity in the system by not using that capacity. So it's both things um, all put together. Now, Ed, where I fall off the train in terms of, you know, people go deep down the rabbit hole is when we start getting into the cloud parts of this and how clouds part of into it. To me, it's about having some kind of software that allows you to actually control these things so that it acts in your system as if it's a power plant, whether that's by manipulating supply or demand and being able to, con- you know, control that in different ways. All right. Let the dart throwing begin. Y'all go. <laughs> like, do I was going to say, so Nika, <laughs> how, how do you feel about that as a definition? Does that work for you? I think at the high level, that's what it is. When you say it like that, you realize that that it's not all that complicated conceptually. But then when you get into like the actual operational aspect of it, you realize that there's like dozens of solar panel manufacturers and there's a couple go-to inverter manufacturers and there's another couple dozen battery manufacturers. And then you have to have that synchrony of not just kind of demand response, which is what a lot of utilities do right now, but it's use this electricity now, fill up the battery to a certain percentage, draw down the battery to a certain percentage, you know, kind of pulling on the market when there's, instead of a curtailment event, can we utilize the assets on the grid? And then on top of that, you have to do it in synchrony with like what's going on in the market. And when I say the market, like the electricity grid market. So like there are different signals that optimize for different things. And that's where it gets really complicated and that where it becomes not just um, technology, but really around understanding the market and like relationships with grid operators and utilities. And when it all works well, it's amazing. And it makes you realize kind of, I think it's, we're circling back to that idea of efficiency and and how the grid works, that you can build less big uh, infrastructure if your small infrastructure works really well in a synchronized way. And where is aligned climate capital on this technology then? Is this something that's kind of at the stage where you're able to be invested in it right now? Yes, 100%. So we're invested in a company called Swell, which has massive VPP projects with several utilities. We're also invested um, in a company called Box Power, which is deploying microgrids, more specifically recently to rural communities as a remote 
grid asset. Um, and then we're also invested in another company called Utility API, which is um, a utility data company, which helps kind of connect the digital infrastructure of all of these together. Yeah, so there are clearly a lot of these different opportunities now cropping up. I was looking at, at some of our research at Wood McKenzie, we've been doing on virtual power plants, and we are tracking projects across North America. There are now more than 500 projects across the US and Canada in our database, which count as virtual power plants, we think. So clearly, there's an enormous amount of activity actually going on, perhaps more than I had realized. And as you say, from just hearing your description of the three different projects that you're invested in and companies you're invested in, there's a lot of different things you can be doing to come under that umbrella of being a virtual power plant. Right. And I think earlier I talked about ecosystem and how all of these technologies work together. Um, I think sometimes when people think about virtual power plants, it feels so, I mean, the virtual part of it is in the title, but it feels like it's very much connected to this futuristic grid that's like yet to be built rather than realizing like all the components of what make the virtual power plant exists today. It's really around the logistics of getting us connected. So I think I get excited around um, some of the regulations around being able to utilize VPPs and having people think about their load profile because all of this is so regional as well, how people use electricity, what renewables are currently on their grid and having them you know, decide that this is the right solution for our grid or for our utility. I think it's going to catch on really quickly. Um, I did a brief search on social media about um, VPPs. I specifically looked at TikTok because I always think of TikTok as a place of where like young people are sharing ideas that they're so excited about. And almost every video was about the Tesla virtual power plant and how they responded to a heat emergency in California and how excited people were about this idea of being part of a connected grid and wanting to feel like they're part of the solution was also kind of heartwarming to me because I think our young people are understanding like, you know, we're in this climate emergency, but the idea that there is like a component in their home that could kind of reduce the stress on the grid and harden the grid digitally versus having to send out people um, boots on the ground to fix the grid was pretty exciting. Yeah, so virtual power plant TikTok, that was something I definitely didn't know existed. That, that's definitely something I've learned today. We know what Ed and I are going to be Googling after this yeah. looking for, because um, I didn't know it existed either, if, honestly, so that's great. I'll just make one quick flag for those um, who are listening who don't already follow Jeff St. John over at Canary Media. I know he did a great piece actually on Swell, um, you know, which you mentioned, NECA, um, a moment ago. And that's, you know, solar and batteries and kind of how do you think about that in the virtual power plant space. He also wrote a really great article that talks about, you know, closer to home for me in New York City, this whole idea of so in the city about three quarters of our citywide emissions are associated with buildings. And so when you look at actually reducing the emissions of the city, it's like, what can we actually do with those buildings to actually set them up to be virtual power plants so they can, you know, help not only cut energy use and then also provide flexibility in energy use, but also directly be used to curb CO2 emissions. So take those moments when maybe it's not about a reliability or resiliency thing on the system where we're afraid of it going down, but saying, hey, if we can actually shift how we're consuming energy in this moment, 
moment, it will have outsized impacts on the amount of CO2 emissions that go into the air, you know, for this hour, those types of things. So that low hanging fruit in that space too. So eliminating waste in the system. And so I just flagged for those who aren't already following them, that article about um, NYC came out, what, a week ago? I don't know if y'all read it, um, but it was, it was it was really recently. But there's a lot of good virtual power plants yeah. stuff that he's written about. Oh, yeah. I think that one was really focused on a company called Logical Buildings that are leading into smart thermostats as part of the virtual power plant um, solution. And then there's also, um, I follow Canary Media, and I think a lot of people in the industry do. I got also excited around um, his writing about the loan program office potentially eyeing virtual power plants for one of the large potential fundings. And I don't know if that funding had been announced yet or not, but that would be really exciting to show, you know, the backing of the Department of Energy in a massive way to get all of us residential folks connected to the VPP if we're not already. Yeah, I also read that article on Canary Media. I agree. I thought it was a really good one and very interesting about, uh, yes, particularly for those of us who are New York City residents, about turning New York's apartment buildings into virtual power plants. It did raise a concern for me, though, which I, I want to come on to, which is that, so when you think about what are the characteristics of a virtual power plant, one of the ones, and this is something, again, in, in our sort of research work, McKenzie has been implicit in everything we've been talking about just now, but just want to make it explicit, which is they have to be dispatchable. And, so that, and that's why I think it's a good uh, subject to be talking about in association with geothermal, same thing, right, which is it's a way of providing grid balancing services, power, sometimes making power available to the grid when you want it, when you need it, with zero carbon. And as you say, sort of packaging together, demand response, perhaps distributed generation, perhaps storage and so on, putting it all together to create a power plant that, as I say, is dispatchable, that is available when you need it. And the line that jumped out at me in that Canary Media piece about what they're thinking about in New York. So they're thinking about, as you say, this company, um, Logical Buildings, and they're talking about um, demand response. And they cite a use case. So, so, so for instance, you know, this could be a um, very useful thing when there is strain on the grid. Um, what we could do is reduce air conditioning electricity demand during hot summer evenings in these New York City apartment buildings. Speaking as someone who lives in a New York City apartment building, I would like to be able to use my... AC on hot summer evenings. And I wonder if one of the big issues is going to be, particularly with retail customers, there's a lot that can be done with the technology, but a lot of the time also people actually won't want to uh, have flexible demand. People maybe will kind of turn the air conditioning down if they're told there's an emergency, but people don't want to make a habit of it. They want the power to be there when they want it. And doesn't that fundamentally create a bit of a problem for that whole virtual power plant concept? So, I mean, I think it's a couple different things. So residential customers, so two things. We have a lot of experience actually at this point with using smart meters that can be controlled remotely to actually have these demand response events amongst residential customers. I know it has been a long time, more than a decade that I know my family in Austin, Texas, Austin Energy, you know, they get their alert saying, hey, we're going to have this demand reduction event. We're going to cycle your air conditioner on and off for half hour blocks. Um, 
if you're not good with it, cool, push this button and we won't do it. So if you are home, you go, you know, actually, um, maybe I could do that once, but I'm not going to do it a couple of times. Or maybe I'm not going to do it at all. I can opt for that. So it's not that one-to-one where it's like if you call up your industrial partner and you say, hey, you've signed up for this rate and this means we can call you, give you a heads up and shut you down for a period of time. It's not the same. And there's a financial compensation there. Or I guess when they're cycling me on and off here, I might have gotten a free smart thermostat um, and I, you know, I'm not paying for electricity. I'm not using, obviously, but the financial benefits are actually not that big or that industrial facility. There is a direct financial reason why they're allowing themselves to be flexible. So a couple different things. One, we need to fix that financial incentive. Because when we look at studies of like what happens when you actually do give people flexible time of use rates, you actually give them the ability to make choices to save money. There are oftentimes, and actually amongst some of the higher risk parts of our communities, they'll make choices to say, I'm going to save money there um, when it makes sense. However, when it comes to residential places, is fundamentally different because this is talking about our homes where we need to be safe and healthy. And so if this is a place where maybe in your home, a couple of degrees warmer puts you at risk during the summer months or a couple of degrees cooler puts you at risk during the winter months, whether you have a very young child, elderly folks in the household, whatever it is, immunocompromised, there's such a long list. I couldn't even begin. We just spend a whole show on that. In those cases, there does need to be that ability to override and keep your system going so that you were healthy and safe. But at this point, we have a lot of data on how many people actually do override when that signal is is sent. You know, how many people actually say, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hit the thing either on my thermostat or on my smartphone or on my computer, and I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to keep my air conditioner running full blast. And the number of people who actually, they have stepped away, left their air conditioner on, even with a programmable thermostat, you know, their their house is running at 72 Fahrenheit during the middle of the summer, and they are not there. And their dog's not there. Their cat's not there. There's nothing that needs it to be 72, and they can give you flexibility. And so I think harnessing that and, you know, understanding understanding to your point, Ed, yes, it's not an on-off switch like calling up that industrial partner and then financially compensating them for it. But we find that it's not 100% or even close to that, the number of people who are overriding those demand response events when they're asked to do it. There's a company in California called Ohm Connect that's doing some of the profit sharing mm-hmm. uh, yep. with those financial incentives. And when I first heard about it as well, I think I had that thought process of like, this isn't actually very much money. But if you're living on the coast or in areas where like the weather is, isn't is so extreme, it's not a lot of money, but the folks in the Central Valley or the people who are getting, you know, those super high electricity bills because it gets so hot there, just shifting, you know, the temperature on their thermostat just a little bit saves a bit of money actually over time. It, it consolidates. So it, it's so regional and it's so specific, but you're right. If it's, you know, 107 degrees in the middle of the desert, you're unlikely to have folks say like, I want to cut off my AC completely. But if the financial incentive is correct, you know, maybe they might move it up a degree or three. And the behavioral economics behind that is what we're hoping to see. And Nick, are of the, the, the companies that you're invested in at Align Climate Capital, those three, are they all working, in fact, not with residential customers? They're all sort of commercial institutions, you mentioned schools, didn't you? I mean, do you think that is actually more where the kind of the opportunities are going to be greater rather than with residential customers? Well, so the three companies I talked about are like operating within this VBP space in different capacities. So Swell, I guess, is like most firmly very much a VPP company. And the way they interact with residential customers is really being 
how do you get a single point of contact for a residential customer who's looking to get solar and storage? And then at the same time, enroll in the programs. And then enrolling in the programs, that's where they're partnered with the grid operators and utilities. And then our portfolio company, Box Power, is essentially making modular microgrids that offset the cost of doing grid hardening for folks at the end of the line. And in California, the remote get grid project has started to become popular because we're seeing immense challenges with things like wildfires and extreme weather like snow that people at the end of the line, which is usually rural communities, are just getting a very low quality of reliability. Um, and it turns out that having a microgrid, remote grid, essentially a VPP asset, is a way that there is some kind of energy equity. And it's a lot cheaper for the utility to maintain and manage. And then Utility API is actually a company that's slightly different. It's actually a utility data company that is essentially seamlessly flowing customer electricity data to third-party providers like a swell or a distributed generation company so they can partner with their utility um, systems without exposing the private information of the customer and making it really seamless for both sides. Yeah, it certainly does seem like a very dynamic sector. There's a lot going on, right? A lot of startups being created, a lot of people coming up with really interesting new ideas. And just to go back to the thing we've been talking about throughout the whole of this show, as you have a grid that's going to require more flexibility on it, all those kind of technological innovations are going to be needed more and more. So I want to move on now to our last topic, which is, well, I think how to come into this. We've been recommending a lot of articles on the show today, and I want to recommend one more, which is a great piece in the current issue of The New Yorker by Jill Lepore, which is called The Data Delusion. And it's all about how businesses and politicians think that if you collect all the data that there is to be collected on something, then you'll have all the answers. And in fact, the world doesn't actually work like that. And it really resonated with me, uh, Neko, because of something you'd been talking about when we were talking in the kind of preparation for this show about ESG. And ESG subject we've dealt with a lot. But the question of ESG data and the question of the extent to which ESG issues can be kind of quantified, turned into metrics, measured, that will definitely then lead us to all the right conclusions. You you are challenging that and have some questions about it. But sorry, I'm putting it very badly. Go on. What is your, what's your argument about ESG data and the problem you have with it? Uh, I actually think ESG data is really important. However, I've been really thinking about how people are using it. I think there are some people who are collecting data for data's sake and not actually reviewing and understanding the metrics of their organizations and saying, hey, what's going on to lead to this information? And a lot of times um, data is a lagging indicator of operations and behavior within a company. And then the second thing I always think about with ESG data and metrics as well is that I think very deeply that, you know, if you measure, you can, you know, review and understand how to make your business run better. You can reduce risks. You can overall provide a net benefit. But there are a lot of people who I think feel like if you get good numbers, 
then everybody will want to copy you or that there'll be a lot of non-believers in kind of this clean energy transition who will move over to this pathway. And I feel like humans are just inherently irrational. We have watched people vote against their own self-interest over and over again. Numbers are good, but like, you know, the classic sort of persuasion principles have, you know, the ethos, the pathos, the logos. And I think we really need to kind of layer on all of those when we're talking to people who aren't fully bought in. But if they're already thinking that ESG is meaningful and, you know, we want to create companies that are not just sustainable for the planet, but like governance-wise sustainable, socially sort of sustainable, it's really important for us to move just beyond the numbers. And also when it comes to ESG and the numbers, I mean, we're doing a lot of work on carbon accounting right now at the Center on Global Energy Policy because World Resources Institute and WBCSD are revising the greenhouse gas accounting protocols and just thinking about, so I've been thinking about a lot about what we measure you know, and how we measure it. And I'm having flashbacks to lead actually a lot where it's like, oh, you get a point because you put bike parking at your place, but then your building is located in a place where you can't bike to it well. And so that's just one example of where it doesn't go exactly as planned, great intentions, but you end up kind of counting something that isn't getting you the outcome you want because to affect that outcome, you need to expand well beyond a building. But there's so many positive things that can come from it by measuring stuff, by having a process that you account for it. But within those processes, having routine baked in places where we can say, hey, we've learned a lot over the last two, three, five years. Let's now revise this so that we can account for the things we just didn't anticipate. Because no matter how good we are, anticipating every single thing about you know how a metric is applied and used and accounting, I. I I don't see how that that happens. We learn over time. And so when it comes to ESG and especially the E part of it, and we're counting a number of things to be able to compare the different relative risks of different investments, different projects, whatever it is that we're using it for, it's just very important to have a transparent system and then understand that these things are going to need to be revised over time about how we actually standardize some kind of process to account for things. And people are busy and they have to make decisions quickly, and the world is very complicated. And so the appeal of these scores and screens and trying to simplify everything down and to use metrics as much as possible, that I can see why that's very appealing. But I do think there's something in what you're saying, Necker, that you often need to look behind the numbers, the numbers on everything, the kind of the temptation to think that as long as you address the data in the right way and respond to the data in the right way, then you've answered all the questions that need to be answered. I do think that's that's a trap that people can fall into. And as I say, th that's a point which is made much more eloquently than I've just made it in this New Yorker article. So I would uh, urge people to go online and read that. It's a very, very interesting point being made. I think I'm afraid we do just about have to leave it there. Before we go, though, it's time, of course, for free electrons, personal items that we brought in, interesting things, possibly or possibly not connected to energy that we want to share. Melissa, what's yours? I'm going to try really hard and limit myself to one. So while we've been recording today, I went from drinking tea from this mug that you guys can see, ceramic. My uh, my sister-in-law actually made it lovely. Um, one of my favorite ones. Fits my hand well. Beautiful. Very Love nice mug. mug. Yeah, yeah. And then I switched to the second mug, this light sky blue colored, kind of, you know, uniformly colored, definitely made not by hand in a factory somewhere mug. 
There's a reason for this. Um, this is actually one of those self-heating mugs that I can put on a little charging pad and it's got little metal bits in the bottom of it and it keeps my tea warm. Um, so this came because my partner was talking about having cold coffee, you know, halfway through a meeting, um, getting an insulated mug, but that wasn't working and it's a whole long story. And so I found one of these for cheap on eBay and I figured I would try it. I have to say, I love having hot tea halfway through a meeting. Like it's really, really nice. Um, and it's a very pleasing experience. And the charge pad actually charges my cell phone as well. So when I'm drinking my tea, my cell phone's on it charging. And then I switched out. So it's got a dual purpose. Um, I find this great. I should never microwave this mug ever, but it can go in the dishwasher. It's great. But this has put me on a rabbit hole of really understanding how we're predicting the demand side of our energy systems. And I think I've mentioned this on previous shows. I just don't think we're capturing what we need to capture when it comes to how the demand side um, is going to evolve over time. We've talked about virtual power plants and other things, but things like me liking to keep my tea warm, <laughs> like how do we account for this and how has actually all the little gadgets in our, in our homes and offices changed over time? Rebecca Dell, I'll just make one quick quote. She talks often about how we know kind of a saturation point for steel and cement, you know, how much you use as a country develops. What we don't have a saturation point for right now is plastic. Um, I kind of wonder if actually we don't have a saturation point that we know about for gadgets in our house that use energy in different ways. But to our earlier points, can receive signals to be used in different ways. Because certainly if I could reduce some CO2 emissions in this moment and I got a signal, you know, I would cycle this on and off and have like lukewarm tea. But um, this one's really surprised me. It was kind of a whim and just wanting to try it out and finding a fix for two busy people, lots of stuff going on, trying to figure out how can I have actually a hot cup of, cup of coffee or in my case, tea during a meeting. And I found a really pleasing solution that has energy and climate impacts. And so now I'm going down the rabbit hole and I want to figure out how big of an impact does my tea have? Exactly. We, we can follow up that with uh, footnotes. When we get the answer, we'll uh, post that in the show notes. Uh, Nika, what's yours? Some of you may or may not know, but I've been trying to get solar and storage on my house for more than a year. Um, so today it's happening. Yeah. Congratulations. Big day. Big day. Thank you. We have a roof that's atypical. So it took, um, there's a, a number of companies that won't touch the type of roof that we have in Oakland, California. And I always joke with people that I'm in the energy space and I've seen so many starts and stops. Um, so I have a lot of empathy for anyone who's trying to go through the process. But we're definitely, my husband's like very much a tech person and into smart home. So we're trying to make our home the most efficient possible. We're looking at, you know, all the heat pump things we can add. Um, and kind of like in the spirit of the VPPs and such, I think heat pumps are what people are also super excited about. Um, not just the climate heat pumps, but water heat pumps and all the things we could do once we trick out our house. Very exciting. Yeah. Well, keep us posted and we you can fill us in on everything exciting that's happened in your home next time we see you. So, Mine is um, just a quick observation I had when I was in London last week, was um, back in England briefly, spent a lot of time hanging around uh, King's Cross Station for various reasons, had to come and go from that place a lot. King's Cross Station, of course, of Harry Potter fame. And there's a big um, uh, redevelopment going on there, and they're putting a lot of uh, office buildings and so on around there. And there's lots of sort of rather nicely done kind of colourful hoardings talking about the project and everything very exciting going on. And they talk about how they're going to be 100% clean energy. 
100%, I think it's a 100% renewable energy, in fact, specifically. And then when you look into what exactly that means, well, it means that they have got a couple of Yenbacker engines to generate the power for the site, which are powered by, uh, fueled by biogas. And so it's an interesting, again, back to everything we've just been talking about, clean, firm power, that's what they need. They need to be available 24-7. They want to do it with zero emissions, so they're going for a biogas option. But clearly there's a whole lot of questions about what are the uh, associated emissions. I can see, Melissa, you're putting the face, which is a bit like the face <laughs> I pulled when I read this. But go on, what, what, what's your thought on this? <laughs> so many questions. So do they have a pipeline bringing this biogas? Are they like compressing it into tanks and bringing it in on the water there? Because I mean, King's Cross is right by the, the river. So maybe, I don't know. How are they burning it? Where are they burning it? Are they scrubbing it? I want to know about the air pollution impacts. I have so many questions, Ed. <laughs> like I have so many. But the biggest one is about how the gas is getting there. Like where are these engines? And like, I, I, I just want to know. Those are fantastic <laughs> questions, none of which I'm afraid I'm able to answer. But exactly, it. it raises okay. a lot of interesting <laughs> like, questions about exactly how this system is being configured. And it just struck me as another great example of any of these things, 100% renewable energy, 100% clean energy, the claims that are made, it's always worth looking under the hood to see what's going on. And as I say, I'm sorry I can't answer any of your questions, but it seems like a great thing, uh, again, for the uh, to add to the show notes. We can stick this on social media as well. We will in, tell people the full details because, yeah, you raise some really interesting questions and clearly significant questions in terms of the project's uh, overall carbon footprint. So, yeah, well worth thinking about. I want to know. So we do have to leave it there, though, for now. So thank you very much indeed, both of you, for joining us today. Thanks very much, Necker. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You guys always know how to stimulate my curiosity. Oh, that's very kind. Very good of you to say so. And definitely um, hope we will have you back on again soon. Many thanks, Melissa. Yeah, thanks, Ed and Neka. It was great to be on with you. I will say about curiosity, I love being able to go down rabbit holes with y'all on the show each week. So, um, Ed, thanks for setting us up for some great conversation. Oh, and thank you. Yeah, no, it's been been great talking to you both. Many thanks to our producer, Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, complaints, whatever it might be. Ideas for future shows, always keen to hear those. So um, look us up on social media. You can find us on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang. I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. I'm also on Mastodon at, as, uh, at Ed Crooks at Mastodon.energy. So we'll be back again here with another show in two weeks' time with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.